Before we get into our lesson for this morning, our study, let's have a short season of prayer here where we can get right into uh, the nuts and bolts of it. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's have a, a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for uh, the wonderful blessings that you continually pour out upon us. And, and the blessings of the Sabbath, we gain not only a physical rest, but that spiritual rest that we need and that fellowship that we need. Father, we thank you so much for it. It encourages us that we're not in this fight alone. We have the presence of angels from heaven with us. We have the Holy Spirit alive in our hearts and we have brethren who trust Thee. And so, Father, we pray that You will continue to be with us this day, especially as we get into Your Holy Word. Uh, we pray for those who couldn't be with us this morning. We pray for those who are ill, that are dealing with not only physical issues, but mental and emotional and and, Father, a spiritual warfare, we pray that you will be very near to them. Give each one of us the Holy Spirit that we may have strength to stand. And give us discernment as we go through your word that we may understand what the truth is, that it, we may be grounded in this truth and be able to share it with others. Make Jesus, people see Jesus in us, his character alive in us. And, Father, we lift up our families before thee. We pray for our children that you will send angels to protect them, and that their hearts may be moved upon what's happening today in this world, and that they may seek thee, the only true God. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Amen. Well, friends, I have entitled this particular message, Preparing for the Overwhelming Surprise. The overwhelming surprise. You know, the headline writers at USA Today put it this way, 9-11, how one day changed our world. That's how they put it. National Geographic observed that the attacks of September 11th would alter the course of history. But let me tell you something, friends. The shocking attacks that happened in 2001, you know, on the World Trade Towers, the Pentagon, that, that planned hit on the Capitol were not the first surprise attacks that changed the way humans do business. Through the centuries, you go back into history, you see it. There have been unexpected strikes on, on civilian targets that occurred during wars, declared or not, and peacetime attacks that came completely out of the blue. And that's what September 11th was, wasn't it? It was an attack that came out of the blue, as far as we know. But such sudden assailments have toppled societies, and they've shaken civilizations, friends. The element of surprise can be a very potent change agent. And perhaps, maybe, even the most powerful weapon of all, when you think about it, one of the earliest accounts of an epic surprise attack comes from Greek mythology. Did you know that? I think everyone has heard of the Trojan horse, haven't they? In one version of that tale, the Greeks finagle away to get a large wooden horse inside the city of Troy as a gift, you see. But inside that horse were Greek warriors, and they were hiding. And they emerged later in a surprise attack, and, and they defeated the Trojans. That was a surprise. 
You know, I read an article a few years ago that said that a handful of, of historians from around the country were asked to help examine other clandestine attacks throughout history that changed the course of human events, as you remember President Franklin Roosevelt said. And I want to share with you their their list of five here very quickly. And, and I was surprised, actually, by number one, speaking of surprises. Number one was actually a part of Bible prophecy, friends. And their number one, of all the, these historians that they talked to, number one was the sack of Rome by the Visigoths there in in uh, that we re- we read about actually in prophecies of Daniel, right? Aided by rebellious slaves, Alaric the first in the in the Visigoths, they rushed through a city gate unexpectedly. If you're a history buff, you know what I'm talking about. There was a three day siege that happened for the first time in centuries there to Rome, and they sacked Rome as they invaded Rome. And when you look at history, non-Christian Romans, what they did, they blamed the sacking of Rome on the abandonment of the traditional Roman gods, paganism. John Hopkins University military historian Mary Habeck, she says the ultimate surprise there was that Rome fell, not that the city was attacked. I found that very interesting that that would be number one on their list of, of these surprise clandestine attacks that have changed the course of history. And we know by the Bible prophecy, it changed the, the power of Antichrist went from pagan uh, religions and gods into papal, right? Papal Rome. In fact, it really did change the course of human history, didn't it? The second thing on their list was the Battle of Trenton in 1776. Are you familiar with that one? You U.S. history buffs, remember on Christmas night, General George Washington crossed the ice-chilled Delaware River to lead, oh, some 24-2500 Continental Army troops on an unexpected raid against the German Hessians there, those mercenaries that were garrisoned there at Trenton. And history tells us those patriot forces caught the enemy completely off guard. And the lasting effect of that was that, that of that success, because you've got to understand, Washington had been retreating and retreating and retreating and losing and losing and losing, and all of a sudden here's a success. And it raised the morale and it proved that the most professional army in, in the world could be beaten. And we know that they were. Third on their list, the Battle of France in 1940. And I think this gets lost to, to those who, who don't know their history. The Germans' successful surprise attack on France had actually did alter the way the world regarded France and the way that France regarded itself. You see, before the Nazis attacked, almost everyone in the world, all military strategists, said that France had the strongest army in the world. But after Germany's victory, almost everyone thought it, that had been an illusion. France was weak and cowardly. The fourth on their list was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. That morning assault by the Japanese army on the U.S. naval base in Hawaii changed the shape of 
Well, the already raging World War II, it brought America into the war. And what what changed was that the 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 focus, the refocus of American foreign policy in profound and everlasting ways that we even see today. It began the military industrial idea. War is big money, friends. The military complex began there. And the fifth thing on their list was the Six-Day War in 1967. On the morning of June 5th, the Israeli planes, they surprised attacked the at-rest Egyptian Air Force. They destroyed hundreds of planes. And similar strikes hobbled Jordan and Syria. And on the ground, Israeli troops marched into the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip, and they routed the Palestinians from the west bank of the Jordan River. They seized the Golan Heights in Syria, and they continued on to the Suez Canal. And that rapid chain of events altered the landscape and, and, and the future of the Middle East. And arguably, foreign policy and state departments around the world, even to this day, All eyes are on the Middle East, aren't they? But this was their top five of overwhelming surprises of their modern era that changed the course of human events. Well, I noticed something when I was was reading this thing. I found that noticeably absent from their list are any Asian events. (laughs) Except for, you know, the attack of the Japanese on on Pearl Harbor there, but that's against the United States, wasn't it? But there's a reason for for that. You see, these guys said that tricks and traps and, and ambushes and other efforts resulting in the surprise of one party by another, they've actually been pretty commonplace in Asian warfare. From as far back, they said, as, as we even have records. Deceit aimed at achieving surprise became so common that it was almost like background noise, they said, without the power to shock anyone. It's really rather interesting. The The Asians have generally been more inclined to fault the victim of these surprise attacks for letting down their guard. Isn't that interesting? I read that the Chinese language has no equivalent to our saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. They don't have an equivalent to that. But if they, if they did, they, they would say something like this. They would say, fool me once, shame on me. That's their, their attitude. And I like that. And I think actually, spiritually speaking, that the Lord likes that as well. You see, God has given us an instruction book to prepare us for heaven. And included in this book are lessons that teach us that we can trust Him in all things, even those that may be a surprise, an overwhelming surprise to the world. So friends, if we are fooled by the devil, shame on us, because we've been given a heads up on what's coming. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 about the ultimate surprise that is coming to the world. And this is something that the Lord's been telling us over and over. He's trying to prepare us for what's coming. In many instances, we are not prepared for it. And let me, let me rephrase that. 
we can be as prepared as as possible, but we're we're going to go, get into a conflict that the world has never seen before. But there is a preparation for it. First Thessalonians five, beginning with verse two. Paul here he's saying he's speaking to the church here. He says, "But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord." so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Isn't it interesting? You get into prophecy, especially uh, Revelation chapter 12, and it speaks about the, the woman, the church, who's about to have this child, and the devil is about to is attacking this woman. And here, even Paul says, you know, sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. It's very painful. I've been told by many women it's very painful. Well, let me tell you, I've had a kidney stone, and, and they say that's about as close that a person can get to the, the pains that a woman goes through when giving birth. And Paul goes on and he says, and they shall not escape. That should be a comfort to us. They're not going to escape the Lord here. Verse 4, but ye brethren, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. Paul says, ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. I want you to think, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, about the ten virgins here. They were all asleep, weren't they? Here Paul's saying, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And what he's talking about here, it's very interesting. I want you to notice the words, he says sudden, and he says as a thief in the night. You see, the day the Lord is coming is a great surprise to the people of this world. Now I want you to notice, I'm going to share three comments about this with you. First one's out of Testimonies, volume 8, page 37. She says, soon an awful surprise is coming upon the inhabitants of the world. This was written over a hundred years ago, friends. Soon, she says. In the same volume of testimonies, back up to page 28, she says, we who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And here's one more. It's from Prophets and Kings, page 626. She says, Christians should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And this preparation they should make by diligently doing what? Studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. What should we be doing? How should we be preparing? By studying the Word of God and striving to conform our lives to what it says. Are we doing that? 
And are we sharing that with others? What exactly do the words overwhelming and the, and the word surprise mean? If you know me, you know I like to get into definitions. Because I want to know exactly what's being said. Webster's Dictionary, the 1828 edition, defines the terms in this way. Overwhelming. They define it as crushing with weight or numbers. And some of the synonyms are enormous and immense. Okay? Surprise. How do they define surprise? He defines it as to come or fall upon suddenly and unexpectedly to take unawares. So the day of the Lord is going to be an enormous, immense, or overwhelming surprise to the whole world. But not so much for God's people. Does that sound fair and accurate? Paul says that the brethren are not in darkness. God's children walk in the light. That's what Paul is saying. So that which surprises the world is not to be a surprise to us, is it? As I mentioned a moment ago, notice that in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25 that all ten were asleep. But I want you to take note, even though all ten were asleep, they all knew the bridegroom, bridegroom was coming at some time. Isn't that correct? Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. What are they doing? They're going where? They're going to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise. And five of them were foolish. Half of them were wise. Half of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now they had some oil in the lamp, but they didn't take any spare, did they? So to begin with, they knew the bridegroom was coming. They went out to meet him. Right? All of them were that way, right? But the foolish didn't take any extra oil with them. Verse 4, But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. They were prepared, you see. That's the scout motto. I grew up, you know, in Boy Scouts, as many of you know. Went up through all the ranks from Cub Scout to Weeblows to Boy Scouts and an Eagle Scout. Our motto is be prepared. And that is ingrained in us to be prepared. These wise virgins were prepared. Some things may happen. They didn't know what was going to happen. They were just going out to meet the bridegroom. Verse 5. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. What happened to the bridegroom? We don't know, but he tarried which meant they had to wait. You know, uh, oftentimes this was, in fact, the story goes that when Jesus was relaying this parable, they were actually looking down upon uh, the scene unfolding. <laughs> and they would go out to meet the bridegroom, and it would be in, in the evening. Sometimes it would get late into the evening. And so here he's saying, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. How many were there? There were ten. 
half wise, half foolish, but they all slept, didn't they? And Paul's telling us, let us not sleep, right? What happened? Verse 6, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And so all ten went forth to meet the bridegroom to begin with, and all ten fell asleep while he tarried. But five were wise because they were prepared to meet him when he did come. So friends, we're to know what's coming and to get ready for it. But unless we get ready for it, What's going to happen? We'll be taken in the snare like the foolish virgins. I hear in Adventism a lot. We're to occupy. We're to occupy. We're to occupy. And people go about worldly business. And many Adventists are waiting for what? Well, they're waiting for the Sunday law and then they get prepared for Jesus coming. I'm sorry, friends. That's foolish. It's very foolish. Do you think maybe that this cry for for a Sunday law, we see the popes coming in this, this fall, is waking the virgins up? Who's prepared? Who has oil for their lamp? Better be preparing now. Unless we get ready for what's coming, friends, we'll be taken in the snare like the foolish virgins. The reason for knowing what's ahead is why? Just for knowledge? No, it's so we can get ready. There's a very interesting point in what Paul said to the Thessalonians that we read earlier. As to the timing of this overwhelming surprise... Paul said, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. That's very interesting, isn't it? You know, several of the modern translations, they put it peace and security. That's what they say. Peace and security. Phillips translates it this way. You are well aware that the day the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a burglary to a householder. When men are saying peace and security, catastrophe will sweep down upon them. Isn't that interesting? The New English Bible says, while they are talking of peace and security, all at once calamity is upon them. And I find that so remarkable in in many ways, actually. But it just struck me the other day why it was remarkable. Uh, another reason why it was remarkable to me, it struck me, is because what are we constantly being barraged with by the media today? Isn't it a push for peace? Isn't it a push for security? Isn't that what they're talking about right now? Peace and security? We need to wiretap United States citizens. Why? Peace and security from terrorists. We need a wall on our borders. Why? Peace and security. We need to rest on Sunday. Why? Peace and security. This has been predicted, beloved. The Bible has predicted this day. 
So let me call your attention to the two great world powers that are leading out in this peace and security. And they'll continue to lead out in this talk of peace and security until the end. One is the Pope of Rome. And the other is the United States of America. Now, I didn't just pull these two powers out of a hat. In fact, it isn't my idea at all. When we turn to the book of Revelation, we find that the entire 13th chapter in that book is devoted to presenting these two great powers. These two great powers. So they're going to be working together. Verses 1 to 10 deals with the first beast. And you and I have seen before that this leopard beast represents the papacy, which is the authority and office of the Pope. That's what the papacy is. In speaking of this beast, Revelation 13 verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. Friends, can it be denied that the world is wondering after the papacy? The Pope is coming to the United States in September of this year, 2015. And what do you think will be his main emphasis? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of speculation, isn't there? There's a lot of conspiracy ideas, isn't there? But we don't need to speculate at all. Because the Bible tells us the purpose of Antichrist. He has a message of peace. All we need to do, according to him, is get back to God, is to rest on Sunday, you know? Didn't you know that? That's going to solve all the world's problems. That's the final push by the Antichrist power. That's what it's all about. The latter part of the 13th chapter of Revelation, verses 11 and on, is devoted to the two-horned beast. And what does that represent? Well, friends, it represents the United States of America. The United States is pictured in chapter 13 as joining hands with the papacy. And that's what's happening right before our eyes, right now. Can you see it? But as the papacy, and watch this point, friends, as the papacy is taking lead in the world quest for peace, the United States is in a special sense talking about the word security. Do you see that? It is the great quest of this generation. Peace and security. Harlot rides the beast. Church, state. Peace, security. I want you to notice how these two fit together and supplement each other. Security. What are people thinking of when they use that word today? Security. 
Well, that word covers almost every aspect of a person's life, doesn't it? They're thinking about material possessions, aren't they? They're thinking about how they're going to be taken care of in, a, in sickness and old age, aren't they? They're thinking about everything that will contribute to enjoying this present life, aren't they? And they talk about security. And friends, we have a program that's supposed to bring security to the people of the United States. Oh, yes. The government has lots of programs. They have a giant program for security. But in the last few years, you know what's happened? It's been pushed to include not merely the citizens of this nation, but for all the people of the world. It's a great, ambitious program, this peace and security program that will start here and envelop the world. The 13th chapter of Revelation shows the papacy in the United States of America joining hands in a great program that is to embrace the world. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, the Bible says, that is the papacy. And the two-horned beast, the United States, is the inspiration to get all the world to do that. Revelation 13 and verse 12. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Friends, the reason that people are interested in these two great powers today is that they're hunting for peace and security. And this is leading to combinations of associations in every phase of life. Combinations and associations you'd never think would ever get together and pull together. I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, the, the European Union, what's the basis of it? They want peace and security, don't they? That's falling apart, isn't it? Who's going to swoop in and bring that peace and security? Think about it. What's the reason for trade associations? What's the, the, the basis of the ecumenical movement? Why are the churches trying to get together? Peace and security. And they'll think that they've solved their problems by having these associations. And with the papacy and the United States leaving out, the whole world will think, for a very short time anyway, that they either have this or they almost have it. But I want you to notice God's answer to all this push for supposed peace and this push for supposed security. And it's found in the 8th chapter of Isaiah. I believe the eye of the prophet Isaiah was looking down the ages and he saw our time. I believe God showed it to me. And here's God's answer for this. This push for peace and, and security in preparing for the overwhelming surprise we need to understand these concepts. What it's all about. The devil is subtle, friends. 
Peace is nice, isn't it? Being secure is nice, but where do we find it? Where is our allegiance? Who is the authority in our life? What does God say about this? Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to begin reading verse 9. He says, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word. Isn't that interesting? Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy. Put that in the back of your mind right there, verse 12. Say ye not a confederacy. To all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither Fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He shall be for us sanctuary. That is a place of salvation, friends. But for, and, and security. There's your security right there. And He shall be for a sanctuary, right? but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. And then he says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. So what's he talking about when, he, when we're talking about this program of peace and security that's being pushed by Papal Rome and uh, peace by Papal Rome, security by the United States. What does God say about it? He says, confederacies. God's people, the remnant, are not to be in such associations. And that's the thing I want you to see. What's driving them or pushing them to join together? Even Isaiah said it. It's fear. And we see it today. Fear. Bible tells us perfect love, which only comes from God, casts out all fear. Fear of want, fear of war, fear of many things. It's what's driving this. So, with the Pope and the United States leading out, there, there must be these associations, you see. The, the churches, the, the unions, the nations, the whole world must get together. And how do they do that? They put aside those things that they don't have in common. They come together on those things that they do. And what is the thing that the Christian world has in common for the most part? Isn't it Sunday observance? Isn't it spiritualism? But here, according to Isaiah, God's people are told in advance, Say ye not a confederacy. The Hebrew word translated there as confederacy is actually rendered as conspiracy in more than half the instances where it occurs in the King James Version. In Second Chronicles 23.13 and elsewhere, it is translated as treason. 
Isn't that interesting? But only here in Isaiah 8 and verse 12 is it translated as confederacy. In this sense, it denotes a confederacy that's, that's formed for the purpose of conspiring against someone. When, and we use the word alliance today instead of confederacy. You see, what Isaiah is saying here, what, what, what's the content? What's going on here? What was going on back there in Israel? You see, Syria and Israel had conspired together. Or they were confederate, you see, against Judah. And Ahaz, on his part, had formed an alliance with Assyria against Israel and Syria. Ahaz and the people of Judah feared the Israelite-Syrian conspiracy or confederacy and had united with the heathen in an effort to counteract it. And that was the problem. It was because he trusted in the heathen for help rather than trusting God that Ahaz was rebuked by the Lord here through Isaiah. It was a reproach, you see, to the God of heaven for his professed people to enter into a confederacy or an alliance with idolaters. Because, you see, God wants his people to stand by themselves, distinct from the world, trusting only in him. We are to counsel with God and to find our strength in Him. And only thus can we have the presence of the Lord with us, friends. Only thus can we accomplish His work in His way. Yeah. When the people of God form alliances of any kind with those who, who know Him not, then the policies of men you see, will inevitably uh, supplant the principles of heaven. And the work of the Lord's going to suffer because of it. Our strength, friends, lies not in close association with the world, but being apart from it. You know the old saying, in the world, but not of the world. And so Isaiah said, Sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be for a sanctuary because the Lord will be our security. Amen? And so it's very interesting after he, he gives all this and you read in the 16th and 17th verses he says, bind up the testimony seal the law among thy disciples. That's where the sealing message is, isn't it? The Sabbath is put back into the law and it's sealed. So you have this big peace and safety program where you look to man and God's saying, no, bind up the testimony, bring back the Sabbath. This is the dividing line between my people and the world, between this false peace and security and true peace and security. In verse 17, he says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. 
So while all the world is looking for these confederacies, or these, the whole world's looking for these alliances, binding together in bundles in order to solve human problems and, and hopefully get this peace and get this security, God says to His people, He says to us, don't get into that, but look up. Look to the Lord for your peace. Look to the Lord for your security. For your sanctuary. Notice how it's echoed in Isaiah 45, verse 22. He says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And friends, right here we have the answer to all the problems. This is the faith that will save God's people and take us through the overwhelming surprise that's coming. We are to be looking to God. And I want you to notice that that, that that is the opposite course that's being pushed today, isn't it? Looking to man. And looking to man is what actually makes it impossible for these worldly associations to solve their problems. Because you see, they're beyond human help. Testimonies, volume 9, page 13 she says they are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. <laughs> it's impossible for the governments of this world following the plans they are using to solve the material problems of men. We all know, we recognize, most of us who have sense and have a spiritual discernment know that the economies of the world are, are a house of cards. And yet, what do they do? She says they struggle in vain to place business operations on a secure basis. They struggle in vain. Because governments and men cannot solve that problem. And it's even more impossible for the papacy to solve the spiritual problems because the people are educated, you see, to look to man instead of directly to Jesus Christ. And that's what the papacy is all about, isn't it? We aren't we are to go directly to Christ. That's impossible. We're to go to a priest. We're to go and look up to the vicar of Christ. Aren't we told that? Isn't that what the whole world is wandering after? But we aren't to look to man. We're to look to God. And so the message for today is... He has given to us in His book is Behold Your God. Notice how Jesus puts it in Luke 21. Pointing past the destruction of Jerusalem and in the dark ages, He comes to the time of the end. And in the 25th and 26th verses there in Luke 21, He says, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Have we seen those? Yes, they're past. That's happened. And he says, Upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them for love? No, for fear. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. We're living in a great time of fear, friends. 
we see that denominator around the world in these alliances. It's fear. That's what's driving them to these confederacies. That's driving them to these alliances. That's what's driving them to to treason against the Creator God. There are thousands of people today, if not millions, who a few short years ago wouldn't have considered listening to the Pope. But they're ready to follow Him now. Look at the charismatics who had the love fest with the beast just last year. Why now? Why now? They're afraid of something that they think is far worse than the papacy, friends. Jesus says that men's hearts in these last moments of time will be failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Let me tell you something. If we look where they look, we'll fear their fear and we'll be drawn into these alliances. We'll get into situations where where we'll think that the only way out of trouble is to link up one way or another with some of these, these alliances, these confederacies. Because what happens? What happens if our eyesight is drawn from looking up to looking out. That's the result, isn't it? And so what does Jesus say in verse 28? He says, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. Isn't that what he says? Lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. It's getting close. Soon, very soon, beloved, all the people in this world will be divided into just two camps. Those who are looking to man and those who are looking to God. Those who are looking around them and those who are looking up. And right there is where the law, the line is drawn. Now the question is this. If God, who knows the future, sees that all this is coming, what kind of training will He be giving to His people? Will it not be a training to get them to look up? To look to God instead of man? And how will He do this? Let's think about it. Let's think about it. This is serious. If we get into difficulty and we find a certain way to solve the problem and then, and then that problem comes up again and we find the same way to solve our problem, don't we develop a habit as it goes on day after day? And would it not become difficult to change the habit once it's formed? Haven't we run into that? Don't we, don't we each one of us have habits that we wish we could change or we're trying to change? Now, if we get in the habit of having, for example, men solve our problems, whatever those problems may be, and they, they can be you know, actual problems, of course they mostly are, and we do want to solve them, 
But if we get in the habit of, of looking to men and having men solve our problems, what will eventually be built into our characters? Dependence upon whom? It would be man, wouldn't it? And let me tell you, friends, the devil has set every agency in operation to get us into that place where whatever our problem is, whether it's a financial problem, a health problem, an emotional problem, a happiness problem, a religious problem, whatever it is, there's some man or there's a combination of men, there's an alliance that can solve it, solve all of it for us. Especially if we spend some money to get the answer, isn't that right? That's this peace and security program that's being pushed, you see. And the internet, newspapers, radio, television, and most all medias today are pouring these ideas into the eyes and ears of the multitudes around the world. And that's the brainwashing that's going on. But God's conducting a different kind of school. And if we will listen... He'll teach us something entirely different. Like we read there in Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And that's in the little things as well as the big things, isn't it, beloved? Now let me touch on a very practical point. Let me share this with you. And speaking of this looking to man, I want you to have a right context of what I'm talking about here. From the Ministry of Healing, page 486. This is a very practical point. She says, We are prone to look to our fellow men for sympathy and uplifting instead of looking to Jesus. We're prone to do that. That's our natural tendency is to look to people. When you look at the roles between men and women, men are primarily problem solvers, aren't they? That's built into them, right? So our natural tendency is to look to people. You know, a little child does that. And of course, a a child should, shouldn't they? But how many grown-up people uh, are their friends that whatever trouble they get into, all they can think of is, is to run to where? To some human being. To some program to some alliance. You know, over half the people in this country are on welfare. (laughs) Just as an example. It's incredible. And so, we have this tendency, as she says, we're prone to look to our fellow men for sympathy and uplifting. And so nearly all the members of the human family, if they know anywhere to look for help, it's usually to some other human being, isn't it? But if you and I are going to go through this overwhelming surprise that's coming and not be destroyed, we'll have to learn the lesson of looking to God instead of looking to men. Amen? And so watch how God brings us to this lesson. This is very interesting. Back to Ministry of Healing, page 486. She says, In His mercy and faithfulness... God often permits those in whom we place confidence to fail us in order that we may learn the folly of trusting in man and making flesh our arm. Isn't that very interesting? How is one of the only ways that God can get us to learn that lesson? Sometimes by allowing human beings to fail us. 
Did you ever get disappointed in some human being? (laughs) Well, what's the lesson in that? Jeremiah chapter 17. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. Soon, friends, very soon, as this overwhelming surprise breaks upon the world, as they see that they've been led to perdition by the dragon and the beast and the the false prophet, in the very act of talking peace and security, oh man, what a terrible awakening. And there will be a great terror that will spread from east to west, from pole to pole. The whole world will be in utter confusion. But we look through what's coming upon us, friends. Earthquake, hailstones, terrible storms, all the elements of destruction will be turned loose. That's what's coming. In the midst of all those Elements, warring elements, you you hear the song essentially from the remnant. You read it in Psalms 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed. Isn't that beautiful? So whatever happens, if men fail us, well, you see, we're not building on them, are we? If governments go down, our security isn't in them. If the great religious leaders that have led the people to violate the law of God, if they're overthrown and the whole world breaks up, our hope is in that man that's in the sanctuary in heaven, Jesus Christ. It's Him who said, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isn't that true, friends? So today, if somebody disappoints us, Let's remember what it's for. If, it, if it's a big disappointment, then we have a big lesson to learn, don't we? If it's a little disappointment, we can have at least a little bit of a lesson, right? We're learning to, to step by step to not build on man, but to build on Jesus Christ. And does this not allow us to see people for the really the frail human beings that we all are? Doesn't it teach us that we all need Jesus, even those who fail, especially those who fail? And so, friends, we are preparing to stand. I hope that you are. So you're preparing to stand when great Babylon goes down like a, a millstone cast in the depths of the sea. The Bible tells us that God's children will stand secure because their anchor holds within the veil. They are prepared for the overwhelming surprise. They have oil in their lamps. And they will be there to meet the bridegroom when he comes. Today's a day of preparation. Today's a day that we are to be preparing for that overwhelming surprise that we all know. We Bible students, we members of the remnant, we who follow Jesus wherever he goes, we know it's coming. We know about the overwhelming surprise. And how are we told to prepare prepare for it? By studying the Bible and and changing our lives to come into accordance 
into accordance with its precepts. Only then will be we be actually prepared to see Jesus face to face. Do you believe that, friends? Revelation 22 and verse 20 says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. And John added, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Do you want Jesus to come? Do you want Him to come sooner than later? He's not going to come back until He has a people prepared to meet Him. And that's the time we're living in. We know it's close. We know that we as a people are close to His coming because He will not come back until He has a generation of people, His people, who reflect His character perfectly to the world. By faith, friends, let's walk with Jesus and make that happen. Amen? Let's make that happen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank You for the wonderful blessings that You pour out upon us. We thank You, Lord, for loving us with an undying love and for giving us these advanced history lessons that we may be prepared for what is soon to take this world. We see the signs of the times, Lord. We see the Pope is coming, the representative there of Antichrist. He's coming to this United States, and he has a purpose. His purpose is to usher in his day, his holy day, which isn't holy at all. The Father, as we see these things, we pray for, for courage to stand, to stand for truth. Though we may look alone, may we rest in the assurance that you've given us that we are in the majority in the grand scope of things and that you are by our side. Please continue to bless us on this most holy day that we may gain that spiritual rest that you've provided. And thank you so much for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.